Martin served with New Tribe's mission in the Philippines, where Martin was a jungle pilot, delivering mail, supplies, and encouragement to other missionaries, and transporting sick and injured patients to medical facilities. Gracia served in various roles, supporting the aviation program and also homeschooling their children, all of whom were born in the Philippines. And on May 27, 2001, while celebrating their 18th wedding anniversary, the Burnhams were taken captive by a militant group of Muslims. And in addition to the Burnhams, the group seized several more guests and took them to another island, which was a stronghold for this group. And in the ensuing months, some of the hostages were actually killed, but most were set free. From November 2001, only the Burnhams and one other hostage remained in captivity for more than a year. And under the total control of their captors, they were constantly on the move, living in primitive conditions in the jungle, evading capture from the Philippine military, enduring gun battles, and witnessing unspeakable atrocities. Soon after the events of 9-11, the news media took a great interest in their story. And, of course, that meant the story was going to be in the headlines a lot more. And on the afternoon of June seventh, two 2002, over a year since their abduction, the Philippine military attempted another rescue. Tragically, Martin was killed during the gunfight, and Gracia, wounded but alive, was rescued and returned home under a national spotlight. And since that time, Gracia has authored two books, In the Presence of My Enemies and To Fly Again. And her talks about the spiritual lessons she learned during her captivity and how God has blessed her and her family since Martin's death is something that forces even the hardcore doubter to rethink faith. Here's a website for you, graciaburnham.org, G-R-A-C-I-A, Burnham, B-U-R-N-H-A-M.org. Gracia, thank you for, yet again, sharing your story. So let's just get through the the details of the day, because I've got about 937 questions I want to follow up with. (laughs) Good, let's go. Let's, of course, jump right back to, I think, was it around June 7th, 2002? Was that rescue day? That was rescue day, yes. And but it was also your tenth day without food, right? Yes, I didn't know you could go that long without food. I thought you don't eat for three days and you drop dead, but you don't. Um, we had salt in our backpacks, and I would watch what the guys, if they were picking a certain leaf off, leaf off a tree, eating it. I would do the same, and we had water. But we were weak and exhausted. There had been numerous sort of gun battles prior to this. I think this might have been your 17th gun battle. Uh, We'd been through 16 before, and we knew that um, someday the bullets weren't going to miss us and were going to find us. And we were desperately hoping that someone would ransom us out or negotiate us out. Uh, We hated the gun battles. But yeah, here, here came another one on June 7. What were you doing when you were shot in the leg? Well, uh, we had realized that morning that the military was following us. We had heard them off in the distance. So we had just kept walking and walking. And always before, there were certain unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military. They never had gun battles at night. They never fought in the rain. And it clouded up to rain. This was the tropics. So... We thought we were safe, and we set up our hammocks and just sat down for a rest. And um, the military didn't stop that day. They came over the hill, much to their credit. They pressed on in the rain, and they just opened fire on us. And so what exactly were you doing at the moment you were shot? You were running? You were hiding? You were... No, I was sitting in my hammock with Martin. Um, We had this 
plastic sheeting that we would put over the hammock to shield the rain. And we had just sat down and Martin said something to me right then. He said, Grace, I've been thinking about Psalm 100 all day about um, serving the Lord with gladness. He said, this doesn't seem like serving the Lord. We've been walking through the jungle for a year, but let's by faith accept that that's what we're doing here. We're serving the Lord and we're doing, let's do it with gladness. And minutes later, we were just resting there in our hammocks and the gunfire opened up and he was dead. And I was wounded. Some of his last words to me. So there wasn't a whole lot of gunfire and then you were hit. I mean, you were hit with the initial spray or can you do you know that timing? I think we were hit with the initial spray. I think right away they kind of came over the hill, opened up firing at us which was very, uh, that was characteristic for the Philippine military. I'm not sure they knew how to do hostage rescue, you know, selective gunfire. They would find our camp and they would just Rambo style. Right, right. Spray it with bullets. And that's what happened this time as well. Just bullets flying everywhere. Right. So all of a sudden you hear the bullets and and instantaneously you're hit in the leg and and at what point did you look over at Martin right away obviously but yeah. and and you realized he was hit in the chest yes i i hit the ground martin had always taught me to do that when you're in a gun battle lay flat right. make the smallest target you can and um i looked over at him and he was bleeding from his chest and i knew that you know um uh leg wounds might heal but chest wounds don't and I don't know how long the gun battle lasted. You know, they say time slows down, and it seemed like a long gun battle. Hmm. But Martin was just breathing very heavily, and I was trying to do what he taught me to do, you know, just lay there till someone told me what to do. And then I could hear the shouts of the um, Abu Sayyaf as they retreated down the river, and I could hear the Tagalog, the language of the soldiers coming down the hill. So I started to move my hands around uh, so they would know I was alive, and uh, they came and started dragging me up the hill, and I looked back at Martin, and he was white, and that's when I knew he had died during the gun battle. So do you remember the last look, the last words, the last connection you and Martin had? Probably sitting there in our hammocks when he said to me, this doesn't seem like serving the Lord. Right. Let's do it with gladness. It was like, um, and I think we prayed together because we normally did. We just prayed and committed ourselves to the Lord again, Mm -hmm. as we had so often. And yeah, just kind of a normal day. It had become a normal day. We'd been there over a year. And, you know, here we go again. We think the military's out there, but we don't know when. uh, we, We don't know where. We don't know when they'll find us, if they'll find us. It had been that way for a year. Where were your children at that moment? They were back in Kansas. Um, Our kids weren't with us when we were taken hostage. We had left them with our neighbors, our co-workers on another island, because we needed to go work on a southern island in the Philippines. And so we had told them we'll be gone for one week. And of course, after we were taken hostage, the, the State Department and our mission agency sent them home to live with their grandparents in Rose Hill, Kansas. Do you think that 
Well, I, look, I'm sure that this whole thing has not only shaped your world, but of course it's shaped your, your kid's world. But I'm, I'm actually very interested in, in how is being kidnapped and having your husband killed change your theology. Yeah. Um, you know, we were in the jungle, and I think I gave God about six weeks to get us out of there, and we would go back to our ministry and our children, and everything would be fine. And then week six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I think week ten, I kind of had a crisis. And I thought, why does the scripture say, if you will ask anything in my name, I will do it? Why is it even in there? Because it's not working for me. (laughs) And I started questioning a lot of things. I think really the enemy began whispering in my ear, has God not said, where is your gracious God, your merciful God now? And I think I started buying into his whispers and um, one day I was so upset sitting by the river, just kind of falling apart. And Martin came over and said, Gracia, I'm so sorry to see you giving up your faith. And I said, ah, oh, I'm not giving up my faith. I, I still believe God made us and Jesus purchased salvation for us. But I don't think God loves me because if God loved me, I would be out of this hellhole. Hmm. <laughs> and Martin said, oh, seems to me either you believe it all or you don't believe it at all, you've got to decide what you believe. And he began to quote scripture to me. I have loved you with an everlasting love. With loving kindness, I've drawn you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he just started speaking truth from the scriptures into me. And I joined in. And and it's like I kind of made that decision right there. Okay. This isn't working for me right now, at least I don't think it is, but I've got to decide what I believe to be true, and I'm going to believe God's Word to be true, because where else do we turn? (laughs) It is written, and if it is written, it is true. You know, over the years, I've spoken with various people who are, well, within the Christian scene, the, the terminology is, you know, they're front line, they're... They're frontline ministry people, they're full-time ministry, you know, whatever the terms are. And we've had these discussions about what I call target theology. In other words, the more you do for God, the bigger the target is in the back of your head, and therefore you are open to the possibility of nasty things happening to you because, as you said earlier, the enemy, um, and a lot of our listeners may not know what that means, Satan or the devil, uh, would want to really try to harm you because you're doing a whole lot of great stuff for God. Target hmm. theology. Huh. Um, do you do you believe in target theology? Well, I've never thought of it that way with me. <laughs> Maybe it's true. Um, I knew I know that we do have an enemy. You know what I think I thought, Drew, was that my service to God, you know, we'd been in the Philippines for 16 years, left the American dream and went to help poor people. Uh, I thought my service to God obligated him to remove suffering and obstacle from my path. I think that's what I thought. And suddenly we were in this horrible situation and we would ask God, why are we still here after all these months? And there was silence. So, no, I don't have that target theology, but um, that'd be an interesting thing to write a paper on. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you play it through and you think about this 
all loving creator father that we have and apparently he's rendered impotent when it comes to those who do great things on his behalf you know i i guess we can only rationalize this from a human point of view from a mortal point of view but i you know this is my my thoughts kind of go like this really so the more i do for you the more chance uh, that my kids are going to get killed or my husband mm -hmm. or wife is going to get killed or someone i care about is i mean come on i'm then forget it. I'm sorry, the deal's off. Yeah, you know what? I've had all those thoughts. But uh, there's something you said that I just can't agree with is God is not rendered impotent. We may not see it, but just this morning I was reading Isaiah because, um, you know, that my, my life coach is my Bible. <laughs> and it talks about God says, I'm the only God. There's no, no other God. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. There's no other God like me. If there is, that God should speak now. And um, I was just reading those words, and I thought, you know what? God's God, whether whether I think he's working on my behalf today or not. And so many places in Scripture it says that he is. He has good things planned for me. And uh, that's why I think I had that crisis of faith, because uh, we think God's wonderful plan for our life includes having enough to eat, having uh, a nice place to live, everybody liking you. What if God's wonderful plan for your life is a life of suffering? And that's what ha my, you know, my captivity opened my eyes to 200 million Christians around the world are being persecuted because of their faith. But when you talk to them, you know, I don't know any of them, but when you talk to them, they say, it's an honor. It's an honor to to suffer for God. And Jesus said, you know, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And I don't know why I never paid attention to that till, till it happened to me. Well, as I think about the logistics of everything that went down in your world that day, when Martin was killed and you were shot and, and rescued, they were able to bring Martin's body back home, or you were able to bring Martin's body back home? They were. They got me out to a, a little U.S. Army field unit that the U.S. had sent troops over to train Philippine soldiers um, in January or something of our captivity. And they had set up a little a field unit in case they ever got us out. And that's where they were doing the surgery on my leg. And I remember just before I went into surgery, they said, uh, Gracia, we want you to know that the helicopter went back in and it brought Martin's body out. So we have his body. And, um, yeah, they they flew it back to the States. And even with a typhoon, he was there for his memorial service. Mm. How, how important was that for you to have Martin's body back? You know, uh, not so important. Isn't that a weird thing to say? No, that's why I asked because look, I grew up in the funeral business and I know I know very well that the human body is and this is going to sound harsh and I'm I'm sorry for saying it like this, but it's just a piece of meat. Uh-huh. You know, um that wasn't important to me, but I think it was important to some of the family and that's why I think God let it work out so his body could be buried in Rose Hill, Kansas. I remember the shock on the children's faces when they went to the funeral home and there was Martin um, with a beard and he was, his cheeks were sunken. He looked like something from a, the Holocaust survivors or something. Sure. And 
and they thought it wasn't him. And I said, that doesn't look like your dad, does it? And they said, no. And I said, well, it's not really your dad. It's the shell that your dad lived in. Yeah. Um, that's what's left. Your dad is alive and well. And um, if we believe what we believe, he's with the Lord. Absent from the body is present with the Lord, the scriptures say. Hmm. And um, I just felt so bad for him at his funeral because he looked so horrible. Hmm. Um, he his goal was to get home and eat well and start lifting weights and start looking good again because we would catch the occasional glimpse of what we looked like in in the water or you know in the river and we knew we looked horrible hmm. but I just felt so bad for him. We're chatting with Gracia Burnham. Uh, she of course was a uh, uh, is a missionary, but uh, we're talking about a, a time in her life where she was a missionary held hostage for over a year. Uh, she was shot during a rescue attempt, and uh, unfortunately, her husband was also shot and killed. She's the author of two books, In the Presence of My Enemies and To Fly Again. Uh, the website is Gracia Burnham. Gracia? Gracia? Gracia, I know. Gracia. Yeah. Gracia like Marcia. Yeah. yeah. org. Okay, so this leads me to another question. You're, I was just thinking about your kids seeing your your husband, their father, in the, in the casket and... Um, just the trauma that that they had to go through. Should missionaries with kids go into overly dangerous countries or regions? What do you think? Uh, well, I think you should do what God calls you to do. Uh, some people say, and it sounds really nice, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Well, no, I don't agree with that. <laughs> but I think that the best place to be is in the center of God's will. And I think God picks certain people to do difficult tasks. Martin loved what he did. He could put a loaded Cessna down on those short little jungle strips built on the side of the mountain and get it stopped in the next few hundred feet to deliver supplies to some missionary living out in the middle of nowhere who also has three little kids. And um, no, I would never say stay home and be safe. Um, if if people don't move outside their comfort zone, how are we going to care for the world? But you know as well as I do that uh, we are human, and we are trying to discern what is God's will and what isn't. And there are many people around the world who have thought God has said this to them or that to them, or God wants them to do this or that. And you got you know, as outsiders, we look at it and go, really, really? I'm not quite sure you got that one right. So the reality is that people could discern that it's God's will for me to take my uh, wife and my seven kids to the deepest, darkest, you know, scariest place in the world. And it, it they just got it wrong. Yeah. You, you know what? I don't believe in the dot theory that, um, that God has a certain path for you. And if you deviate, you've ruined your life. Um, I don't believe in that. I think because we know Jesus, there are lots of options open to us. And we ask him, Lord, what would you want us to do? And we get an idea, right? And some people go into horrific places today. You think, well, that must be the Lord sending them there because who else would want to go into that horrible place? So um, we make choices and ask God to slam a door if we're fixing to do something really stupid. And I don't think we did anything really stupid. But I did hear that, Drew, when I got home. A lot of people said you shouldn't have been there in the first place. Mm. Those people are happy. Well, uh, you've never seen a tribal person who, when the lady, this certain village we flew for, 
when the lady was pregnant, ready to deliver her baby, they would send her out in the jungle alone to deliver the baby. And if she came back, rejoicing in the village. If she didn't, a few weeks later, they would go looking for the bodies because the spirits must have been mad. You know, those people aren't happy. And um, if you want a good fight with me, (laughs) those anthropologists um, who say those people are happy and we're going in and ruining their lives, uh, they've never lived in a village. Or maybe they have lived in a village for a while. But if it's so great, why don't they take their family and live in that village? You know, I have a sneaking suspicion, Gracie, that you are no longer the weak one in the relationship (laughs) as you used to describe yourself. Oh, I am the weak one. Drew, uh, when when you said we had to Skype this interview, it's like I almost uh, fell dead because (laughs) I am the weak one. And uh, so um, I don't know how to do anything. I'm a ditzy blonde. Changing a light bulb can become a one-hour thing to me. It uh, so no. And and when I travel and speak, people say, "Wow, look what God's doing!" Because it's very evident God's doing it. Because I'm such a jerk. (laughs) So um, yeah. I, I, I'm not the strong one. Right. Uh, Martin was incredibly strong. What were some of the most traumatic things that you witnessed while you were held hostage for a year? Well, I beheadings. We we never watched it in front of us, but it was you know a few hundred feet away, uh, over the hill. Mm-hmm. We heard it raping the women. Uh, that happened right there beside us at night. Uh, That's not in the book because it doesn't need to be. Uh, There's nothing honorable about those men. And when men think that anything they do is excusable because they are involved in jihad, things are going to get pretty bad. And they did. These are the same people that held the two Canadians last year that were beheaded. I'm sure you remember them. And um, it's the same group of men, the Abu Sayyaf. Yeah. are the people who killed um, the Canadian hostages. Yeah. It's been within the year. Um, wow. and, uh, and, you know, I think Canada has kind of prided itself staying out of the, staying out of the war, right? Um, I mean, not the war, but the you know, staying neutral. And that's how we view Canadians as, you know, they're so pleasant and they stay out of the, um, all of the mess and, here, Canadians were taken and they beheaded them too. So mm-hmm. it's not even like the, the innocent are given any kind of a pass with them. Mm-hmm. Well, let me let me finish with this question because uh, okay. a, a little later in the show, we, we are going to be discussing this in our roundtable mm-hmm. forum. Does it worry you that Islam will take over Christianity as the world's number one faith by the year 2100, which is really not that far away? Or does that statistic absolutely you know, make no difference in your world. Um, That doesn't bother me. Um, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And that means there is going to be a battle and we're going to be on the offensive, but we're going to come out the winners. So um, I I take my theology from what's written in this book and... um, if what my daddy taught me, my dad was a pastor, things are going to get really bad before Jesus comes back. So, um, no, I would love to have Muslim neighbors, and I would love to show them the love of Jesus and be kind to them and 
be but, welcoming to them. But you, you said you'd love to have Muslim neighbors, but it, just before that, you said from a theological perspective, understanding Scripture, things are going to get really bad. Uh, so, oh, well. so does that mean that if the world's number one religion becomes uh, Islam, is that part of the world getting really bad before, uh, before Jesus fixes stuff? Well, that's a great question, and I do not. I'm not one of those people who thinks every Muslim is out to get anyone. Most Muslims want exactly what you and I want. We want to live in a safe place. We want a place that's wonderful to raise our children, a better place than we, we had maybe, um, a safe place, a place to thrive. That's what most Muslims want. And to lump them all together is doing a huge disservice to a lot of wonderful people. Hmm. Um, so I, I'm sorry if, if I made it sound like that, because I, I don't mean that at all, because okay. that's not what I believe. Okay. But that there are the militants, and we do need to be aware of them and maybe even fearful of them. But no, I'm, I'm not afraid that they're going to become more than us. My job is to live a godly life. My job isn't to micromanage the world. <laughs> I think God can do that on his own. <laughs> yes, God and Pat Robertson. Um, oh, there, there you go. All right, so you are heading up this way, and you will be here Sunday night, uh, March 5th, speaking at Harvest, is it Harvest Bible Chapel, is that what it's called, in Oakville? Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, uh-huh. Oh, great, so uh, folks... At 6.30, if, I think. All right, 6.30, Harvest Bible Chapel, Oakville, uh, is where you can come and hear this lovely lady. Uh, no. And and will you be doing some Q and A? Will people have a chance to actually speak I with will. you personally? Good. Yes. Okay, that's good. Um, I think there's Q and A at the end. Good. GraciaBurnham.org. GraciaBurnham.org. Gracia. I keep saying Gracia. Gracia. Yeah. Well, how would you know? I don't I have no idea. <laughs> grow up. No. So GraciaBurnham.org. Gracia, I really appreciate uh, your time. And actually, I I need to just finish with this. You have a um, a gentle tenacity about you. I'm going to have to look up tenacity when this show's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate your time and, and you sharing your story yet again. And I think really at the, at the bottom of all of this, it's, it's the rest of us going, I wonder if we would still be um, worshiping this God that allowed so much nastiness to happen to, to, uh, to us, right? I think that's yeah. at the bottom of a lot of your story, don't you? That, I think so, too. And um, when, when you're at the bottom... That's when you have a choice to make. Am I going to look up and seek the one who made us and who says he makes all things work together for good for us? Um, even if it's not working for me right now, we don't think. Or am I going to trust myself or, you know, decide there's not a God or whatever path you decide to choose? And I'm hanging on to what scripture says to be true. That's what I'm hanging on to. Because I don't think I'm real wise, and um, but God's wise and God's mighty, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hang with Him. <laughs> Good idea, Gracia Burnham. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Drew.